standing on the platform of truth. Pioneer Health and Missions. The title of today's message is Pandemics in the Journey of Israel from Egypt to Heaven. We're currently in the midst of a pandemic, aren't we? And I think all of us have faced that. But you know what? There has been a much bigger pandemic, spiritually speaking, that has been around for quite some time. And this is the primary focus of our study this morning. And I'm not going to dismiss the fact that we're currently facing a pandemic. Not at all. Uh, and in fact, we're going to touch upon a little bit upon uh, literal pandemics, plagues. Uh, this is uh, what they are referred to, not just in the Bible, uh, but in, uh, in the world as well. But aside from that, the, the main focus of this morning's study will be examining the pandemics or the pandemic that has been around for quite some time. And that pandemic is called the journey of Israel in the wilderness, both physically and spiritually. And we will see in a second what that means. But before we begin, uh, I would like you to... Uh, kneel again with me, please, because I want us to invite the Lord to be present with me, to give me strength so that I present what He wants me to present rather than my own thoughts. And we want His angels to be present with us as well. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before You and we want to thank You for all that You do for us. Father, we are so blessed to have You in our lives. We're so blessed to have Your Word. Father, as we open our Bibles this morning, I pray and ask that You demonstrate to us the truths that are important for us in these last days. Father, we want to have present truth. Lord, I pray that you be with me. I pray that you guide my mind, that you guide my lips, and that you help me to present everything in such a way that can uh, reflect what you have presented in your word and also touch the hearts of those that are present here with us today. Father, we want to ask for your angels to be here as well and to keep the powers of darkness away from us. Help our minds to be concentrated and focus upon thy word. And may thy will be done in the lives of each and every one of us. We thank you, Lord. And we pray and ask all of this in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So what are we going to focus on today? Here's a little outline of uh, the different subjects that we're going to cover. Uh, we're going to actually cover a lot of ground. We're going to examine the journey of Israel in the wilderness. And more precisely, uh, their journey from Mount Sinai to Canaan. That's going to be the main focus. And in order to do so, we're going to actually go through the entire book of Numbers. Then we're going to examine the exact same journey of spiritual Israel this time from Babylon to heaven. Or more precisely, we're going to cover 1844 to heaven. And then at the end, we're going to see where exactly we are today. And most importantly, we're going to look at the application of what we have examined. Because when we study the Bible, when we go over history, uh, there's always an application to that history. What is it that history tells us and how can we apply that today? That is the focus of this morning's presentation. As I mentioned, we are all very familiar with the journey of the Israelites from Egypt to Canaan, right? Uh, God prepared a man by the name of Moses who was to go and call his people out of Egypt in order for them to go on a journey 
and be settled into what we call the promised land, the land of Canaan. And I'm going to share with you now a little map that shows you what this journey actually looked like. As you can see here, this was a physical journey. Uh, of course, there were many, many spiritual lessons along the way within that physical journey. Uh, but the Egyptian, uh, excuse me, the Israelites were to leave Egypt behind, go through Mount Sinai, and from Mount Sinai go into the Promised Land. As I mentioned earlier, our main focus here will not be the first portion, even though there's a lot of lessons found in there, the actual Exodus. There are so many lessons in the actual Exodus. But our main focus today will be the journey starting at Mount Sinai and from Mount Sinai covering that, uh, as you can see here, that path into the promised land, into the land of Canaan. Now, do any of you know how long this journey was supposed to take from Mount Sinai to Canaan? It was actually supposed to be a two-week journey. So the Israelites were supposed to arrive at the promised land within a span of two weeks. But not getting ahead of myself, I think we all know the story. I think we all know that it took a lot longer for the Israelites to make it to the promised land. And now we're going to examine these lessons and see why that is. There's something very particular with Mount Sinai. And we're going to go uh, into the book of Exodus, the last chapter here. But before we do so, when, when, we, when we think of Mount Sinai, what is the very first thing that comes to our minds? I think we can all raise our hands in uh, collectively in an agreement say that the very first thing that comes to our minds is the Ten Commandments and the covenant that uh, Israel entered into with the Lord on Mount Sinai. I mean, when you speak about Ma Mount Sinai, that's the very first thing that comes to mind. And that is the first thing that I want us to keep in mind here. They now knew very well what the Lord had ex expected of them. And because of that, he knew that they need something else in order for them to be able to be successful with the keeping of those commandments. And this is what we see here in Exodus chapter 40, verses 33 and 34. And I'm quickly going to go over these verses. And it says there, And he reared up the court round about the tabernacle and the altar and set up the hanging of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This, brothers and sisters, is how the book of Exodus ends. So alongside the Ten Commandments that were given to Israel, the second and most important thing that Israel received during that Sinai experience was the revelation of the sanctuary service. Two very, very important points for us to keep in mind. I have tried to make this as uh, visual as possible with pointing, a few, pointing this journey on a map here on our PowerPoint. So as you can see, our journey here begins at Mount Sinai. The very first thing that we see at the end of the book of Exodus is the revelation of the commandments of God and the tabernacle or the sanctuary service alongside the priestly service of the Levites. And that, brothers and sisters, takes us into the beginning of the book of Numbers. The Israelites are now getting ready and preparing themselves to enter into the wilderness. Do any of you know why the book of Numbers received that name? The book of Numbers was called by that name because in the beginning, in the very first opening chapters of the book, and also at the end of the book of Numbers, we have a census 
taken of the people. So one census at the beginning and another one at the end. Now, how do you take a census of something? Well, you have to have an established group of people. Also a very important principle for us to keep in mind. So God had this established group of people that we call the Israelites. He takes a census of them and they begin their preparation for their journey into the uh, wilderness. The very next thing into these opening chapters as we move forward through the book of Numbers that the Lord uh, reveals to that people or the, the Lord instructs the Israelites is the order of the actual camp and how they were to settle. Very important aspect. As you can see here on this picture, we have uh, a slide that's illustrating how the Israelites were to settle around the camp. As you can see, we have the tabernacle right in the middle. We have those who were associated with the service of the tabernacle round about. That's the Levites and the priests. And then we have the various, um, uh, the various tribes settled around in what we call perfect order. So here are the Israelites. They're about to go into the wilderness. And the, the very first thing that the Lord institutes with them is camp order. But you know what? It does not end there. He actually continues to organize these people in a very particular way. And we see that example in Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 to 6. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lasting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? Murmuring comes up with respect to food, right? They wanted to eat flesh. We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There's nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. As you can see here, brothers and sisters, the Israelites at the very start of their journey, as they're being organized, they begin to murmur. They begin to murmur about the food, the things that they partook of Egypt. We see that the spirit of Egypt is still with the Israelites. They want to partake of the same meals that they used to partake of when they were under bondage. But the Lord had provided for them. They were not hungry. They were just not happy with the food. Again, very important for us to keep these things in mind. They were not happy with the food, with the manna that the Lord was providing for them. And in fact, because of this situation, notice to what extent Moses was impacted by what he was witnessing. And in here in Numbers 11, chapters, excuse me, verses 14 and 15, we read with respect to Moses, I am not able to bear all these people alone because it is too heavy for me. And if thou deal thus with me, kill me, I pray thee. Out of hand, if I have found favor in thy sight, and let me not see my wretchedness. Moses is unable to get the people to move forward on his own. It is an impossibility for him. And what takes place? We continue on in verses 16 and 17. And the Lord said unto Moses, Gather unto me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom thou knowest to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them unto the tabernacle of the congregation 
that they may stand there with thee. And I will come down and talk with thee there, and I will take up the Spirit which is upon thee, and will put it upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with thee, that thou bearest not thyself alone. You know, brothers and sisters, this passage here, or this chapter here, Numbers chapter 11, immediately reminds me of Acts chapter 6. Because there's the exact same thing happening there. There's a murmuring among the people, and the apostles come in, and then they organize people, they appoint deacons in order to assist them with taking care of the things that are needed within the church. And here in this um, instance, in Numbers 11, we're presented with the exact same thing. There's murmuring between the people. They want to go back and eat the, of, the, of the food that, is, that originates from Egypt. Moses is not able to deal the, on his own with that entire congregation. The Lord comes in and the Lord furthermore settles and organizes his people in such a way that everything can be taken care of. This, brothers and sisters, is the beginning of the journey of the Israelites from Sinai to Canaan. The very first thing that the, uh, that the Lord institutes was order. How the camp was to be organized and how the people were to be organized. Why? Because without them being organized, they were not going to be able to continue their journey successfully. A very important principle. Notice what we find in Patriarchs and Prophets with respect to the way Israel was organized at that time. She says, The government of Israel was characterized by the most thorough organization, wonderful alike for its completeness and its simplicity. The order so strikingly displayed in the perfection and arrangement of all God's created works was manifest in the Hebrew economy. God was the center of authority and government, the sovereign of Israel. Moses stood as their visible leader by God's appointment to administer the laws in his name. From the elders of the tribes, a council of 70 was afterward chosen to assist Moses in the general affairs of the nations because he was not able to bear the burden alone, just like the apostles were not able to bear the burden alone. Next came the priests who consulted the Lord in the sanctuary. Chiefs or princes ruled over the tribes. Under These were captains over thousands and captains over hundreds and captains over fifties and captains over tens and lastly, officers who might be employed to special duties. As you can see, brothers and sisters, Israelite, the Israelites at that time were prepared in such an organized and orderly manner that it reflected the created things of God. Why? Because heaven, brothers and sisters, is a place of order. The universe is a place where order reigns. It's a law of heaven, as have we've been told. So here we are on our map again, continuing forward on our journey, moving forward. The Israelites are ready and now they're going to go into the wilderness. But before we move on, I want to bring out one very important aspect here with respect to what else took place while they were being organized. Coordate Menabirim. As soon as organization was taking place uh, amidst the camp of Israel, there came a group of people who began to oppose the way the Lord had set up things. We know that they uh, were not happy with the way Moses was 
orchestrating everything in the camp and they wanted to present a better way of dealing with these things. As a result of all of that, an actual, literal, physical plague falls upon the people. Okay, so that's what I wanted us to connect here with this point as part of this journey while the Israelites are being prepared. You have the Lord organizing His people, number one. Then you have others who come and oppose the way things are organized. And thirdly, you have a literal plague in the camp. So these three go hand in hand according to what we see here in these opening chapters in the book of Numbers. And now we're going to move forward. Okay, we're going to move forward into the book of Numbers. We're going to move forward together with the Israelites and follow through with their journey. From there on, brothers and sisters, they, the Israelites, come to what we call Paran. Now, do any of you remember what took place at Paran? There's something very important that takes place at Paran. The Israelites are that much closer to the promised land. Uh, they, in fact, they are within walking distance of the promised land. And here Moses sends in 12 spies to bring in a report back. I think we all remember that story. But just so it is refreshed in our minds, let's go to Numbers chapter 13 and see what it is, what kind of a report was brought back by uh, those spies that were sent in. And we're picking up here at verse 30. And it says, and Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, speaking of the promised land, for we are well able to overcome. Here, brothers and sisters, we see a man of faith, a man who was ready to go in and possess the promised land. Caleb and Joshua, the two individuals that gave that good report. Then we continue in verse 31. But the man that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Caleb and Joshua come back, certainly filled with the Spirit of the Lord, with the Spirit of faith, with trust in the Lord, wanting to impart that same Spirit, that same faith to the rest of the congregation. But how do the people respond? It was only Joshua and Caleb. The rest of the spies, the rest of the ten spies, were not in favor of that same desire that Joshua and Caleb had. And then in chapter 14, we see what the response of the people was to that report. And all the, picking up at verse 1, And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt? Or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore had the Lord brought us unto this land 
the fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey. Where it not be better for us to return into Egypt? What do we see here again? The exact same spirit. The spirit that desires for these people to go back to Egypt. The exact same thing that we saw with the murmuring and desire for the flesh, meats, and pots of Egypt. This pandemic, brothers and sisters, does not seem to leave the Israelites alone. It just continues to come back to them over and over again. I think we all are familiar with how the story ends and what comes here is a consequence of this rebellion by the Israelites. Later on in verse 28 to 33, we read, speaking, Jehovah here is speaking, he says, Say unto them, as truly as I live, saith the Lord, as ye have spoken in mine ears, so will I do to you. You see, the Lord, the Lord tries to do everything with us, but we still have free will. He does not take that away from us, and He did not take that away from the Israelites. He says, Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number, from twenty years old and upwards, which have murmured against me. Doubtless ye shall not come into the land, concerning which I swear to make you dwell therein, save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, which ye said, should be a prey, them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which ye have despised. But as for you, your carcasses, they shall fall in the wilderness, and your children shall wander in the wilderness forty years, and bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness." This, brothers and sisters, this two-week journey that the Israelites were supposed to be on went from two weeks to 40 years because of lack of faith, lack of trust in the Lord, and because of the spirit of disobedience. And that's where we find the Israelites at Paran. Now, what is important for us to take from these verses also to keep in mind is the fact that we see here Two generations being presented. The, they were called the old generation and the new generation. Something very important. The old generation was not going to enter into the promised land. But rather only the new generation of whom Joshua and Caleb were, a representative, were representatives of. You see that? Joshua and Caleb were what this new generation generation represents. And we're going to come back to this generation at a later time. But it's important for us to keep that in mind, that the Lord here presents to us, or the book of Numbers presents to us, two generations. And lo and behold, and so it was, the Israelites went back into the wilderness for 40 long years. But you know what? Unfortunately, that same spirit, that we've seen thus far did not leave them. In fact, it progressed. It progressed to the point where we come to another portion in our journey. 
and that portion is found at Moab. Now, do you remember what took place with the Israelites at Moab? Let's go to Numbers 25, verses 1 to 4, and we'll see here exactly what it is that took place with that group of people back then. And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab, and they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods. And notice here what it says, And the people did eat. You see, that, that problem of food, of partaking of bad food, keeps on coming back. What is it that the Israelites ate here and bowed down to their gods? They, the Israelites ate of those meals that were associated with this false worship. So that food problem keeps on coming back for them. And in verse 3 says, And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them, hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. At this point of our journey, brothers and sisters, we come to the greatest apostasy that the Israelites committed from Mount Sinai to the promised land. They joined themselves unto Baal Peor, Baal worship. And we know that any form of Baal worship is Satan worship. Again, there were consequences. And again here, we see another literal plague, another literal pandemic falling upon the people. But, thankfully, the journey does not end here. This is not the, the end of these people. Why? Because this old generation finally reaches that time when all of them pass away. And we are brought to the end of the book of Numbers. And I want us to finish with verses 1 and 2 in uh, chapter 34. As a reminder as to what takes place at the end of this journey for the Israelites. It says there, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye come into the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall unto you for an inheritance, even the land of Canaan with the coasts thereof. Now there's something very important for us to keep in mind with the entrance into Canaan, and that is the fact that the old generation is now past. We have a new generation, and we have Joshua as the leader of that new generation. And I want us to go into the spirit of prophecy just to go over one quick paragraph, just as a reminder of how it was that this people, this new generation, entered into that promised land. Because we know that um, under the leadership of Joshua, uh, the Israelites had to face three major military campaigns, and they had to face more than 30 armies in order to get into that land. It was not as easy as it would have been when they came to the promised land the first time when Joshua brought back the good report. Nevertheless, under his direction, that people entered, that new generation entered into the promised land. So, how was it that they entered? 
And notice what we find here in Spiritual Gifts, page 43.1. The Hebrew host marched in perfect order. This is, uh, they're going to battle. They're going to uh, the battle against the walls of Jericho. And how are they approaching that battle? In perfect order. First went a select body of armed men clad in their warlike dress, but not now to exercise their skill in arms, but only to believe and obey the directions given them. You see, this new generation, unlike the old generation, was ready to have faith in God. Next followed seven priests with trumpets. Then came the ark of God, glittering with gold, a halo of glory hovering over it, borne by priests in their rich and peculiar dress, denoting their sacred office. The vast army of Israel followed in perfect order, each tribe under its respective standard. When was this standard established? Well, we learn of that in the beginning of the book of Numbers. The Lord organized this people, and this new generation kept the exact same organized standard, even though the old generation had passed away. And under the leadership of Joshua, who is a type of Christ, and we know that, this new generation enters the promised land. And that, brothers and sisters, brings us to the end of this journey in the book of Numbers. And as you can see here on the screen, we have these uh, five or six, I should say, major points within that journey. There's so much that can be covered in the book of Numbers. I suggest that you go on and you study the book of Numbers because there are so many lessons in the book of Numbers that are applicable for us today. And now, brothers and sisters, in the second portion, we're going to move a little bit faster because there's... Uh, um, a little bit less ground for us to cover as far as quotes and verses. But what we are going to do now, we are going to see the exact same journey repeated. Identical journey. The journey of the Israelites in the wilderness. However, this time we're not going to be dealing with a physical journey, but rather a spiritual journey. We know that we don't have to get from point A to point B by foot, but rather we have to get from point A to point B spiritually speaking. The title here says, From Babylon to Heaven. And you might be wondering, well, why not from Egypt to Heaven? Didn't we just examine uh, Egypt rather than Babylon? Well, actually Egypt, Babylon, and Rome are synonymous with each other. And here I'm going to briefly share the, um, I'm not going to read the verses, but I'm just briefly going to mention these verses so that you could see why Rome, Egypt, and Babylon are synonymous when we talk about spiritual things with each other. Egypt is called an iron furnace in Deuteronomy 4.20 and Jeremiah 11.4. Egypt, and, or Pharaoh, is also called a dragon in Ezekiel 29.3. Rome is represented as the iron beast from Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. Rome is actually represented as a dragon in the opening verses in Revelation 12. And Rome, papal Rome, is represented as Babylon or the mother harlot in Revelation 17. So when we talk about Rome, Egypt, and Babylon, we are actually talking about the same spiritual entity. And this is the reason why this journey that we're beginning now is a journey from Babylon to heaven.
we're going to call this journey the journey not in the wilderness, but the journey of the three angels. And when we go into the book of Revelation, this is exactly what we see. We, that's the last chapters of this book present to us not only uh, the Mark of the Beast crisis, but a journey of these three angels that come on the scenes of this earth's history, one after the other, and so on and so forth. So our journey right now is a journey of the three angels. And there's a principle that I want us to lay out with respect to this journey, because it is a very important principle. There are three paragraphs that I'm going to share with you right now that are found in uh, the writings of Ellen White. Uh, and it's a um, very peculiar ear that is being quoted here. Uh, this was written in 1888. And notice what she says, and I want us to keep these things in mind as we examine this journey of these three angels. She says, Some of those who are newly come to the faith claim to have special light from God in regard to these messages. But their new light leads them to set aside the established truths that are the pillars of our faith. They misinterpret and misapply the scriptures. They misplace the messages of Revelation 14 and set aside the work which these messages have accomplished. Thus, they reject the great way marks which God Himself has established. You see that? New light cannot contradict established way marks. It has to go in line with what the Lord has established. And now she will solidify that in the next few sentences. Since their new light leads them to tear down the structure which the Lord has built up, we may know that He is not guiding them. This is how you can set aside false teachers, brothers and sisters. If a teacher is, or, or, or a brother or a sister is presenting things that they claim for them to be new light, but yet they're contradicting the established truths, which are scriptural truths, then you would know that they are not being guided by God. And notice this last sentence. The experience of those newly come to the faith, which includes all of us, by the way, because we are newly coming to the faith. That faith was established in her days. If the Lord is working upon their minds, will be in harmony with the Word of God, the Bible, and with His past dealings with His people and the instruction He has given them. He will not contradict Himself. God has given the messages of Revelation 14 their place in the line of prophecy. It's a journey. And their work is not to cease until when? Till the close of this earth's history. So do you see now why we're calling this journey the journey of the three angels' messages? Because even though they began over a century ago, those messages are going to what? Continue until the close of this earth's history. The first and second angels' messages are still truth for this time. In fact, they're more truth than many of us, including myself, even realize and are to run parallel with this which follows. What does that mean? We don't stop to preach the first and second angel. No, the first, second, and third angel's message continue to be preached parallel until the end of time. The third angel uh, 
proclaims his warning with a loud voice, and ultimately that's where we're headed. We're headed to the loud cry. After these things, said John, I saw another angel came down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. In this illumination, what do we see? The light of all the three messages is combined. We want to give the loud cry? Or to continue to give that cry? There's been a cry going out already. But we, we want that cry to lighten the whole earth with its glory? Well, in order for that light to be revealed, the three messages, one, two, and three, need to be combined. They need to be preached. And they need to be thoroughly understood by each and every one of us. So here we are, brothers and sisters, at the start of this journey. We have the year 1844 and the year 1848 listed here at the beginning of this journey. And the exodus for uh, God's spiritual Israel started before that. It started with the first angel's message. So, uh, But as I mentioned, we're not focusing so much on the trip between Egypt and Sinai, but rather from Sinai to Canaan, because the exodus of spiritual Israel began in eight, around 1833 as the Millerite movement and the first angel began to be given by William Miller and so on and so forth. But at the year 1844, that span of four years here, 1844, as soon as the Great Disappointment comes about, to 1848, there are two very important principles that the Lord gives His people. In 1844, Jesus moves from the holy to the most holy place and a proper understanding uh, a complete, I should say, understanding of the first angel's message is given to his people. And what was that? The sanctuary service. The people of God at that time have come to an understanding that Jesus Christ is our heavenly priest and that he has literally moved from the holy into the most holy place and they receive a proper understanding of the sanctuary service. They move on and by the year 1848, the truth on the Sabbath comes to them. Why? Because a complete revelation of the sanctuary service and the Ten Commandments was at the foundation of the journey of the three angels' messages, just as it was a foundation for the people of Israel. It was the Mount Sinai experience for spiritual Israel at that time. From there on, we move forward and we continue to build upon what the Lord has done. Now, we all know that the second angel's message takes place at around the period between 1840 and 1844. However, what did we learn earlier from the quotes that we saw from Ellen White? These three angels are to continue to be preached until the end of time. So in the 1850s, uh, the Advent people are actually given more light upon the second angel's message. And what was that light? Well, they, were, they came to the realization that even though they had started as a group of people, they needed to follow through with what the Lord has presented in His Holy Word when it comes to gospel order. The very first thing that takes place on this journey of spiritual Israel is for that people to be organized. And by the year 1863, we see a organized church coming upon the scenes of this earth's history. 
without that organization being in place, there would not have been enough people to take care of the needs of the church. You see, we need deacons, we need deaconesses, we need elders, we need all these spiritual offices that we see in the book of Acts, that we see being established by the Lord Himself in the early church, are necessary so that the different spiritual and physical needs of the church can be accomplished. And like the Israelites of old, the very first thing that the Lord does with His people before they go deep into the wilderness is for them to be organized. Notice what we find in the Review and Herald of uh, August 27, 1861. This is Ellen White speaking, and, and she says, I was shown that some have been fearing they should become Babylon if they organize, but the churches in central New York have been perfect Babylon confusion. And now, unless the churches are so organized that they can carry out and enforce order, they have nothing to hope for in the future. And I just want to take stop here for a second. Brothers and sisters, If first and foremost, if we want to give the second angel's message, which is to call people out of Babylon, can we do so in its completeness if we are in a state of confusion? Can we do that if we're in a state of this order. Can we do that unless we are organized according to the gospel order that the Lord has given us? No, we cannot. We have nothing to hope for in the future. These are some strong words. Nothing. Everything will be of no avail. We can try to preach the gospel as much as we want, but unless we have come out of Babylon completely and are perfectly organized according to the blueprint given us by the Word of God, we have nothing uh, to hope for in the future. And just as it was in the time of Moses with Dayton, Kor, and Abiram, so it was in the time of the pioneers. There will always be people who will either be against order and organization or seek to have uh, uh, things organized according to how they view things should be organized. These are the two ways that you could oppose that. And this, brothers and sisters, is what brings me to the thought about the pandemics. Now, I think hopefully uh, you have seen that we've been dealing with a pandemic from the very beginning of this presentation. But at a few times uh, when we were examining the journey of the Israelites, we noticed that there were literal plagues fall upon the people, literal pandemics. One was uh, when God was organizing His people, a literal pandemic came upon them. It is so fascinating uh, when you study history, Bible history and world history as well, because, you know, history tells us a lot about the present and the future as well. At the year 1855, right in the midst when the Seventh-day Adventists, when the Advent people were being organized according to gospel order, something called the Third Plague comes upon this world. One of the largest plagues that humanity has faced in these last few centuries, it took the lives of 12 million people. So when God is organizing His people, rebellion come, comes, just as we saw with Korah, and also a literal plague falls upon the people. And we see in the, that exactly being repeated in the 1850s. A literal plague fell upon humanity as a whole. So the pioneers had to face a lot when they were going through that process of organization. In fact, we know that from 1861 
onward, uh, about 1863, there was civil war in the United States, civil unrest. These people had to face a lot. Nevertheless, they were able to continue on that journey. And the enemy was not able to slow them down. And I uh, firmly believe that that is going to be the case for us today as well. So don't allow the pandemics that are taking place around the world to discourage you or uh, even worse, to take us off course of our path. We are on the journey of the three angels' messages and we need to continue on that path. Moving forward with our journey here, we come to what we call spiritual Paran. And I think you remember what took place at the year 1888. We talked so much uh, about that, that year. But I want us to remember that by just uh, sharing two quotes with you from the testimonies uh, because they're very helpful and they set everything into such a beautiful perspective for us today. Israel, brothers and sisters, by the year 1888, was at the Jordan ready to move into the Promised Land. And notice what we find in the spirit of prophecy. The Lord in His great mercy sent a most precious message to His people through elders Joshua and Caleb. Sorry, I mean through elders Wagner and Jones. This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It presented justification through faith in the surety. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. It is the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of His Spirit in a large measure. We see, brothers and sisters, that spirit, the spirit of this new generation, a generation that was ready to have faith in the Lord being presented by these two brethren at the Minneapolis conference and then going forward into even the years up until maybe uh, 1894. Ellen White, Jones, and Wagner wanted to arouse the people and to point them to Jesus Christ as their surety in order for them to have faith and enter into the promised land. I think we are all familiar with the history and we know what took place. But here's the great controversy solidifying what we have been studying this morning for us. She says on page 458, paragraph 1, It was not the will of God that Israel should wander 40 years in the wilderness. He desired to lead them directly to the land of Canaan and establish them there, a holy, happy people. It was supposed to be a week, a two-week journey. But they could not enter in because of unbelief. We saw unbelief, lack of faith. She continues, because of their backsliding and apostasy, they perished in the desert. This is what this is what happens with this old generation, brothers and sisters. The old generation perishes in the desert. And others were raised up to enter the promised land. In like manner, it was not the will of God that the coming of Christ should be so long delayed and His people should remain so many years in this world of sin and sorrow. But unbelief separated them from God. It's been over a century since 1888, and we are still here. Do you know why? 
because unbelief, because this spirit of Egypt continues to fight for our souls. Many today, though they call themselves Israelites, are wanting the meat pots of Egypt. We finish with Paran, brothers and sisters, and we come to the point where we mark the greatest apostasy that spiritual Israel has committed today. And now, I have put the year 1980 here uh, because I want to talk about a particular aspect with respect to 1980. But the Moab experience began way, way early before then. In fact, the Moab experience began while Ellen White was still around and began with John Harvey Kellogg. Then, later on through the years, we see Froome, we see QLD, we see this continual apostasy by uh, this old generation. We're going to see now why we keep on calling it an old generation. But at 1980, we come to the culmination of something. And we see something there take place uh, that reminds us of Christ's first advent. When Jesus Christ came upon this earth the first time, He was not recognized as the Son of the living God, as the Messiah. He was put on the cross. And as the Israelites were putting him on the cross, and as they were asked if this was their Savior and who their king was, what was their response? They said, we have no king but Caesar. At the time of the crucifixion of Christ, the Israelites rejected Jehovah as their king and chose Barabbas, son of the father, another Jesus as their savior and it was at that time that this church this institution this group of people became a harlot yes the lord gave him a few more years until the stoning of stephen but it was at the cross where they themselves solidified themselves as an old generation as a generation that the lord was not going to use anymore to take the gospel to the world. A new group, a new generation, the Christian, we enter into the Christian age, was used by the Lord now to carry on the work for, forward. And that is the principle that the Lord always applies with His Word. In the year 1980, at the General Conference in Dallas, Texas, the World Seventh-day Adventist Church solidified itself as an on an organizational level, not on an individual level, the Lord still works with all of us on an individual basis, just as He did with the Israelites of old when uh, the Christian Church was uh, came into an was established. But as an organization, the Church, the worldwide Church, solidified itself as that old generation that is not going to be able to take the work forward. And if this is the first time you're, you're coming across these thoughts, I pray that we are all going to understand that. Once you become part of Babylon, once you become a harlot, there is no turning back. The book of Revelation tells us that we are to leave Babylon behind, not to reform it. Why? Because Babylon is not going to get reformed. That new organization, that old generation that lacked faith, that has gone back after the pots of Egypt, 
is going to be swept away when the time comes. It is not going to be reformed and we need to understand that because there are souls there that need to be warned and need to be saved. The Lord is still working with people. And it, unless we understand that, how can we continue on to give the second angel and to call people out of Babylon? This is a very important aspect that I thought it should be understood by all of us and that we should come to these conclusions because it is imperative if we want to give the second angel in complete clarity. We're almost at the end of our journey. We know from the Word of God that spiritual Israel is going to enter heaven. We know that. But brothers and sisters, we studied these two journeys this morning because there's something very important. And as we conclude, I want us to bring these aspects out because, as I mentioned earlier, we always need to make sure we apply everything we study um, to our spiritual life today. The most important thing that we saw in these two presentations is the fact that there are two generations. There were two generations in the time of the Israelites, and there are two generations today. Obviously, we're not dealing here with literal age. We're dealing with spiritual matters here today. And these are two, spirit, two different sets of spiritual generations. And Joshua and Caleb were representatives of those generations. Why? Because there were certain principles that we see behind these two generations. The old generation commits adultery, false worship. And we saw that at Moab. The old generation lacks faith. And ultimately, because it lacks faith, it's going to lack Christian character. And because it lacks Christian character, he's not going to be able to be successful in the mark of the beast crisis. The old generation was self-dependent or is self-dependent. The old generation brings in, brings in new ideas to Scripture. Why? What is it that the Israelites were continuing after? They were continuing after the flesh, the pot, the meats of Egypt. What is, what is food, spiritually speaking, a representation of? What are we to partake of every day? The Lord gives us manna, right? What is, what is our manna to be? It is the Word of God. But the old generation does not only feed on the Word of God, it also feeds on the teachings of Babylon. And that's why we see that over and over again. Teachings that originate in Egypt, in Babylon, being presented not just in Adventism, but in this so-called non-Trinitarian movement. That same spirit is alive today. This old generation is as much here today as it was in the time of Egypt. The old generation today is out of harmony with the first 50 years of our faith. Why? Because... This is what we saw earlier by those three paragraphs that we mentioned. Everything that the Lord established in the first 50 years, everything in fact that the Lord established unto the point of Paran, 1888, was doctrinally sound to get that people over the Jordan into the promised land. So all these new ideas that contradict those old truths that are coming to the forefront today, and there are many winds of doctrine, uh, round about us as we speak are just a representation of that spirit of this old generation. Nevertheless, 
our hope is still there because there will be a new generation. And that new generation is a generation that worships Jehovah in spirit and in truth. It does not go after Baal Peor. That new generation has faith in Christ, just as we saw that represented by Joshua and Caleb. And that faith in Christ results in the spiritual transformation of our characters. That new generation is Christ-dependent. That new generation preaches the three angels' messages in purity. And that new generation is in line with the first 50 years. The manna, the doctrines, the teachings that are found within the Word of God. And that new generation is also in line with the organizational blueprint that the Word of God has revealed to us. But you know what, brothers and sisters? The Lord is looking for a 100% commitment. In order for us as individuals to find ourselves into this new generation that is going to enter into the promised land in these last days and finish the work, we have to make sure that our faith corresponds entirely with, that, with what this new generation should look like. Where are we today? We are at the Jordan. But in order for Jesus Christ, of whom Joshua was a type, to get his people into the promised land, his spiritual army needs to be just as organized as was Joshua's literal army. And I hope you remember the quote that we read with respect to the falling, the battle at Jericho. We need to dispose of the spirit of Egypt from within our hearts and ensure we're in harmony with the Word of God. And above all, we are to help others to do the same. The sooner His people dispose of erroneous teachings, and as I mentioned, there are so many different winds of doctrine even within the so-called non-Trinitarian movement. But brothers and sisters, please do not be fooled. The Bible does not talk about the non-Trinitarian movement. There's only one movement in these last days, only one generation in these last days. And that is the movement that the Lord began in the early 1800s. That is the true movement. And we are to be part of that movement and rebuild that movement and not a new movement. It is only at that time when all these things take place that Joshua himself will be ready to march that army into the promised land. We have nothing to fear for the future, brothers and sisters, because the Lord has given us all these examples in the Word of God and He has given us all this information in the writings of the prophet so that we can be all in one accord united as a spiritual army, and give the loud cry to a perishing world. So my appeal to you this morning is twofold. And I understand that perhaps many of you see what was being presented here. And you're wondering, well, I am fully on board. What do we do next? Are we, is this coronavirus or pandemic or is this uh, uncertainty in the world of economics and everything else that's taking place around the world, is this slowing us down? I say no. So if, if this is what you understand, if, if you're on board with the things that have been presented, not just today, but over the past several months, 
I would like to ask you, brothers and sisters, to pray because we need prayer warriors. We need people who would dedicate time to pray. And if this is perhaps maybe the first time that you come to some of these thoughts and conclusions, or maybe you're wondering whether you are there yet or not, I pray that you continue to study the Word of God and more precisely the three angels' messages as they have been presented throughout history because we need to be settled in the truth if we want to be of one accord. You see, partaking of the early rain is essential in order for the outbreak of the latter rain to come upon us. Can two walk together lest they be agreed? No. And I pray that we're not going to allow the spirit of the old generation to continue to hover over us as individual, but dispose of the flesh meats of Babylon and find faith in Jesus so that He can bring us together as one people, as one spiritual army, and take us through the Jordan into the promised land. And if you have desire to see Christ as soon as possible, I will invite you now to kneel with me so we can petition Him in prayer to help us with what we've talked about this morning. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for Your love and care for each and every one of us. Father, we see that You have a desire to get Your people into the Promised Land. Lord, give us the urgency in our hearts to dispose of whatever it is that we might have in our life. Lord, I pray that You help us as individuals to be a Caleb, to be a Joshua, to have faith in Jesus Christ. Help us to complete to come to a complete understanding of the three angels' messages so that we can preach them in clarity to a perishing world. If there's something in our lives, if there's something in our characters that needs to be improved, I pray, Lord, that you continue to reveal that to us. Perhaps we're holding on to a false idea or whatever else it might be. I pray that you reveal that to us. I pray that you bring your people together You organize them as to what a spiritual army should look like as it was presented in the book of Acts and that you help us to move forward and take the loud cry to the four corners of this earth and not delay the second coming anymore for people are perishing and I am sure that all of us are sick of being in this world of sin. Father, I pray for everybody that is here this morning and for their families. I pray that you have a special blessing upon them and that your angels continue to be present with us as we continue through this Holy Sabbath day. And we surrender ourselves into thy hands and we pray and ask all of this in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Standing on the Platform of Truth. Pioneer Health and Missions.